Yeah, welcome to everyone joining us. We are happy to have you. My name is Tang. I work with the Surge Network um, on the leadership team. Uh, and yeah, yeah, happy to be here today with Vermon Pierre. Vermon is uh, leading us on our second discussion um, out of a series that we're doing this fall um, regarding topics in race, politics, um, kind of a uh, a mixed bag. Um, last month, we had a discussion with Dr. Issa McCulley as he talked about his book, Reading While Black. Um, and we've got a handful of speakers coming once per month in that series. Um, also alongside that, we have a series in, in um, regarding different aspects of the pandemic. We had time with uh, Caleb and Lisa Mitchell on praying in the pandemic. We spent some time last week uh, talking about, oh, sorry, Caleb and Elisa in parenting spent some time last week praying in the pandemic. Uh, and so we encourage all of you guys to, um, to follow that series as well. Um, so today, uh, Vermon is going to lead us um, in this next, in, in that first series in our next uh, little exploration on how to vote. Um, and I assume that that's going to be a pretty quick conversation. You're just going to tell us who to vote for and we'll be done in a minute or two. Um, yeah. And, you know, given, given a, debate last night that was very clear and uh, civil and shouldn't be too complicated of a, complicated of a topic. Um, but for those that don't, that don't know Vermon, Vermon is the lead pastor at Roosevelt Community Church, which is in downtown Phoenix. Um, he's also on the Surge Executive Board, so on sort of the steering com committee that um, helps guide uh, the Surge team and the Surge network and what direction we're going. Um, he's also the husband of Danae Pierre, who's our executive director. Um, any other, and well, frankly, his, his, uh, he lends his voice and his leadership to, to lots of different platforms, both, both here locally, uh, and across the country. Um, Vermont, any other, uh, bio details that would be helpful? That works. Great. Great. So, um, just so everyone knows how this is going to work, uh, Vermont's going to lead us through about 30, 40, 45 minutes of, of discussion. Um, and throughout that time, if, if anyone that's tuning in has any questions, um, you're welcome to send uh, a message in that little Q&A box. If you, if you open up your window, there's uh, a box for chats, polls, uh, and Q&A. So if you send, you're, you're, you don't have to wait for the Q&A time to send those questions if something pops up while you're, while uh, Vermont's speaking. So you can send those. And then um, at the end of about 40, 45 minutes, we'll go through those. Uh, um, I'll, I'll help filter through those as sequentially as I can. Um, and Vermont will give as much time as needed to, to run through those. So with that, um, thanks again, everyone, for joining us. And we're looking forward to this dis discussion. Vermont, I will let you take it away. Great. Thank you, Tang. Um, yeah, good to be with you guys. Uh, thank you for taking the time to, uh, to be part of this. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously we're busy. We've got a lot of things going on, but I appreciate uh, you guys uh, valuing uh, just the opportunity in the middle of the day to kind of think through a topic that I think is extremely important. Um, obviously, we're in an election year, and uh, last night, I think, proved that that means uh, a time period for us right now that is ugly, mean, uh, divisive, uh, you you think of the the negative adjective you want to attach to that, and it applies. Like that's that's where we are at. We shouldn't we shouldn't act like it's anything less than that. <laughs> um, now, here's the thing that I think the solution for a lot of people is to uh, maybe avoid this, to ignore it. I, I've seen some measure of that. Like this is just ugly. I just want to look away from it. Um, 
I want to say here, just from the jump here, I don't think that's something Christians can or even should do. Um, the reality is to be a Christian in this country is to, to be in this particular country and to, to, to look around and see what our country is going through. The ugliness, the meanness, the divisiveness, that's the water we're swimming, swimming in. That's the context that we're in. And I want to say uh, that we as Christians, we have a gospel that is big enough and strong enough to handle direct conversations on any topic that's out there, but including this topic of, of how should we vote, <laughs> um, what, what should influence how we vote, that we have a gospel and we have a, a, a gospel story that actually gives us the ability to, to wade into these waters, uh, even with the divisiveness and all the other things that are going on, um, and to have at least some ability to know what to say and, and how to say it. Uh, so, uh, so that's, you know, I think that's just from the jump. I just, something I wanted to sort of press us towards that. And I think you being on this call is, is a way of saying, yeah, that this is something that, that matters and that we should step into. So given that, um, how should we then vote? How should our conversations, um, how should we guide the conversations that we vote? What are the values that should be um, part of influencing us in, in how we, we vote. Um, there's a lot I could say on this, uh, and I, I did a whole sermon series on this, but what I'll be focusing on is uh, in our conversations about how we vote and, and the ways in which we, I think we want to, at least direct conversations in our, in our circles. Uh, as Christians, how we should vote, the conversations we have about how we should vote should come out of a sense of common identity. Uh, that we as Christians have a common identity, and that says everything about how we should think about we how we vote and how even we should specifically vote that shared identity. So let me sort of get a little bit into that. And, and to do that, let me first sort of help us understand a little bit more about the situation I think that we're in, sort of some human tendencies that, that we have. Let me describe a, a study that was done a little while ago. So these researchers set up a, a six-week six half-day summer camp for elementary school children. Uh, and so this is just like any other summer school program. They had all these different activities. But when the kids uh, came into the program, when they started that, that six-week program, the kids were randomly assigned into two different uh, uh, colors of T-shirts, right? So half the kids wore blue T-shirts and half the kids wore yellow T-shirts. And they wore their blue T-shirts and their yellow T-shirts for the whole six weeks of the summer program. Uh, and so all the, all the kids are organized in this way and then – they maintain that sort of split throughout the program. So when it came to seating charts, special events, there's always organized, they're always referred to, uh, addressed, um, always organized within those different color groups. So uh, uh, the teacher might say, or the, the program directors would say, okay, blue t-shirts, uh, you will be uh, doing this nature program. Well, yellow t-shirts, you're gonna be uh, outside uh, and doing this uh, playground game, right? Uh, Whatever it is, always blue T-shirts, yellow T-shirts. At the end of the summer session, uh, so they did a, a survey, and what they found was at the end of those six weeks, the, the kids uh, always had more positive things to say about whatever color group they were part of uh, as, and negative things to say about the color group who they were not part of, right? So kids were more likely to say that all the kids in their particular color group had positive characteristics, and no one... Uh, in the other color group, uh, no one who was in their color group had negative color characteristics. All the blue t-shirt kids are great. Um, all the yellow t-shirt kids are bad, right? If you're in the yellow uh, t-shirt group, the, yellow, the kids with the yellow t-shirt said, oh, we, we were great. We had all these things. Blue t-shirt groups, nowhere near as good. 
What's interesting is um, in that program over those six weeks, it wasn't as if the teachers assigned any value differences between those two color groups. They were totally neutral. The only sort of differences was, okay, tug of war, blue t-shirts one side, yellow t-shirts the other side, right? Or you're going to do this, this activity, you are the group going to do this other activity, right? Uh, they didn't assign any value differences between the two color, group, two color groups. But the kids, over time, defined value differences themselves, right? They, they defined value differences, identified certain positive values for their own color group, and they did that in contrast to the opposite color group. Again, kids in blue color group see blue kids differently, blue t-shirt kids differently. We're better than, than uh, the yellow t-shirts and vice versa, right? All that is to say is that I think it shows that we have a natural tendency as humans to, to form biases and prejudices. Like it's almost like our, our brains – uh, naturally look for those things, right? Uh, in the absence of being given it to them, we, we, we form them ourselves. Oh, I'm wearing a blue t-shirt and they're wearing a yellow t-shirt. And instantly we form different assumptions and prejudices and biases based on that. Now, we human beings have been on the planet for a while. What we've seen is that some of the ways in which we form those biases and prejudices, the groups that we form that allow us then to make those assumptions about one another, they tend to fall along certain lines, along race, ethnicity, uh, age, location, class, just, just to name a few. And what we do, uh, what we've done since the beginning of human history is assign positive associations to the group that we're in and negative associations to the group that we're not in, uh, to the other group, to the other. We've been doing this a while. I think what's different uh, for us right now, what we feel is different is that over, at least certainly over the last decade or so, we have now sort of a, a new identity group that's become really stronger for us. And that's this sort of political identity group. Right. Here's another group that, if at least in America, historically speaking, we've always had divisions among politics. But I think we can say over the last decade, it's become more severe. Our political identities have have become more polarized. And what's interesting is it's that polarization has had an effect on all these other identity groups that we're we're part of. What's happened over the last decade is almost like our political identity that we form: Republican, Democrat, pick those two. They're like magnets that then suck in all these other identity groups that we're already part of. And so now we're part of these sort of mega identity groups that are now even more polarized and it feels, we feel more divided as a result of, as a result of it. So uh, this was interesting. I was reading about this in a book by Ezra Klein called why we're polarized. And so he quotes someone who's writing on this and in his quote, he says this, now it's like then a, a single vote that you make, think of this particular election, a single vote speaks to not just your political preference, but now it also speaks to your religion your race, your ethnicity, your gender, your neighborhood, your favorite grocery store. So no longer is not just like, okay, I'm a Democrat, but I'm a Democrat who lives in the city, uh, shops at Trader Joe's, does yoga in the park on Sunday mornings, and of course I always visit my local coffee shop, right? Um, I'm not just a Republican anymore, but I'm a Republican who lives in the suburbs. Uh, I shop at, at Fry's and Walmart. Like Trader Joe's is too expensive. Who would do that? I, I'm willing to admit that I prefer Arby's uh, as when I want to go eat out. And Dunkin' Donuts coffee is just fine. Thank you very much. Right? So we have these identities that now have all these other identities associated with them. These identities are converged together such that when one identity gets threatened, they all get threatened. I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons for the sense of polarization and division. But I think this is at least one way of expressing why it feels especially heightened. So that now it's not just, okay, the person who wins is going to sort of – the person who wins, whoever wins, Trump or Biden – it's like threatens multiple parts of your self-identity, 
like multiple areas of you're going to get attacked. That person wins, not just that they're a Democrat, but also them being a Democrat is going to hit all these other areas that I'm attached to that are also now connected to this opposite um, party, the, the opposite party that I am because the Democrat is the one who won. And, and obviously it works vice versa, right? The, all of it adds to an increasing sense of division and conflict. <laughs> How do we unravel ourselves from all of that? Um, I mean, and as I said, there's a lot of ways of expressing it, but it's a way of just sort of articulating, like we're talking about severe division, severe polarization. How do we unravel ourselves from, I would argue the natural human tendency to form an identity. Um, and now I think to increasingly have that identity feel even more strongly polarized and divided from other people. And certainly, and this is a whole nother talk, I think the internet and social media has only increased that sense of division, increased that sense of sort of heightened, um, <laughs> increased the ability for us to yell more loudly at the other group who, uh, who's not part of the group that we're part of. Um, how do we unravel ourselves? I think the Bible gives us uh, a couple of different ways for us to think of how we should relate to one another. But here's one of the strong ways I think I, I'd want to point us to. See if you can pick up the theme from, I'm going to read a bunch of verses here. Um, Romans 12, 5. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Ephesians 4, 1 to 3. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. First uh, Peter 3, 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and humble mind. First Corinthians 1, 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Two more, Colossians 3, 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. Galatians 3.28. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is the easy one, right? You hear the theme? It's unity. In fact, I could, I could give a whole bunch more verses. Even when going through this, I, was, I think I was surprised just how strongly the Bible speaks to unity. How strongly the Bible expects that there is ways for people to be united with one another, and the expectation that we we build unity with one another and that we maintain unity with one another, that should press us a bit. We are way too accepting of the divisions in our world. It's, frankly, it's unacceptable. It's ungodly. It's sinful. The Bible, the Bible doesn't just talk about us just getting along. Let's remember, like the words, the, the verses I just read, were, were written in a time first century, uh, where there was a lot of division and polarization. It's not as if like it was written in a time where like there were divisions. You could argue it was even stronger divisions. Um, the first century was full of lots of different groups who looked down on one another, despised one another, groups who prioritized people in their group and demeaned and dehumanized people who were not in their group. Romans versus Jews, Jews versus Samaritans, citizen versus non-citizen, free person versus slave. And yet, here are these verses talking about people who live in those contexts forming a kind of unity, an expectation that there can be a unity, a oneness among people who are in all those different divisions, right? So how is that possible? How, did the, how could the Bible talk about people relating to each other as one? Here's the answer. It's the, the premise of, of what I began with. 
The only way the Bible can talk about people being united together is if they have a common identity. In all those verses, the assumption, either overtly stated or, or, or assumed, is that there is a common identity. A common identity that then speaks to us having unity with one another. Uh, there's another interesting study. This is, comes from those who study uh, group dynamics. What they discovered is if you can get people who would normally be apart from one another, if you can find a way for them to be in regular contact with each other, that makes them more tolerant and understanding of each other. That if you can get people who, despite the different identity groups they're part of, if you can get them in regular contact with each other and help them in that regular contact to form an overarching identity for all of them, what happens over time is that people more and more see themselves part of that bigger group. It helps reduce biases. It helps actually unite them. In spite of the different identity groups that they bring to the table, if they have that bigger identity, that bigger common identity, they're more tolerant, uh, less biased one another, more identified by the shared identity of this overarching identity that they have. So common identity is really important. I mean, here's the question. Is, is there an overarching identity out there that can do it? <laughs> is there a common identity, a tent that's big enough for all those different various different identities that we tend to bring to the table that keep us divided from one another. Uh, I think, I think we know, right? <laughs> there is a common identity that is out there. That is a big enough tent, right? That's the assumption behind all those verses that I gave. It's that common identity as Christians, the degree in which we have that sense that we are fellow Christians, fellow believers. You understand that gives us a foundation to work on unity, to build unity and to maintain unity. Let's not ignore the Bible's assumption that, in fact, Christians, more, more often than not, are always looking to be united, building unity. When there's division, they try to press towards a unity. I'm sort of telegraphing where I'm going here. That's not to say we don't have disagreements, but there can be a, a way in which we're still united in the midst of those disagreements. That's the degree in which, and I think, again, social theory speaks to this, that can only happen. You can only have that kind of unity, that same sense of, of of sharedness with one another, if there's an overarching identity that, that people can link themselves into. That common identity is us as Christians. So what does that mean for us to have a common identity as Christians? Um, let me sort of offer two ways the Bible speaks to how we should understand that common identity. So biblical statements to, to claim and to reinforce the fact that we have a common identity as Christians. So number one, when we say we have a common identity as Christians, we should say, we should think of it as saying that we have a fellow citizenship, right? That common identity is specifically, we are fellow citizens of the same kingdom. It's Philippians 3.20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that, that verse, I just, let's, let's understand, that is a strongly political statement. The Bible has politics to it. That's one of the most strong one of the stronger political statements you can look to to show the Bible has politics to it, because that then uh, to be I mean, to speak that kind of citizenship language, uh, anyone who read it would have thought of being citizen of the Roman Empire. To be a citizen of the Roman Empire, lots of privilege associated with it. You want to be a citizen of the Roman Empire. Being a citizen was way better than being a non-citizen. It was uh, maybe a source of pride. It, it gave you advantages, right? And yet, <laughs> here's here's the Bible. Here's Paul saying. Here's, here's your real citizenship, right? You may be a citizen of Rome or not a citizen of Rome, but I want you to understand, the moment you became a Christian, your fundamental identity is citizen of heaven. 
a part of the kingdom of God. That's your fundamental primary identity. That's, if you're a citizen of God's kingdom and other people are citizens of God's kingdom, that becomes your ultimate loyalty. Fellow citizens with other Christians, part of this kingdom. That is your ultimate loyalty. When we say we have a common, citizen, common identity as Christians, here's one of the things we should think of. I am fundamentally a citizen of the kingdom of God with other fellow citizens, first and foremost. So listen, we have to understand, we got to tell people this, we do not ultimately belong to any political party. Our home is not any political party on earth. It's never been and never will be. We are temporarily aligned for different purposes, for for strategic purposes, for for certain things we want to advance. We're temporarily aligned with certain political parties here on earth. But that temporary alignment and partnership is always filtered through the fact that the party we're most part of is is a citizen of him, is is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God party, because we are citizens of that kingdom. That is our common identity. All that comes out of the fact that we recognize that Jesus is ruler over all rulers. We're fellow citizens with other people because we have recognized that we've come together with other people who acknowledge that Jesus is our Lord, first and foremost. To say, even just to say that, to describe Jesus as the Lord Jesus, again, that's, that's a hugely cosmic political statement. That has huge cosmic and political implications behind it. To say Jesus is Lord is to say that he's God, right? And to say he's God means that he rules over everything. Jesus is Lord. That is the political statement that should ring loud and clear for every Christian. When we say Jesus is Lord, that means, if you believe that, and you believe that with other Christians, you are together saying, we are together saying that he is Lord over every nation and government. He is Lord over every president and prime minister. He is Lord over every governor. He is Lord over every senator, over every representative. He is Lord over every mayor. He is Lord over every council member. Like that is what that means. So you, you see how that then I think speaks to then our common identity as fellow citizens. So to say we're common, we're fellow citizens means we're part of this new people that say that Jesus, whenever, whenever I'm with other Christians, we're all together saying Jesus has come into all, each of our lives. And we all agree that he is Lord over every part of our lives. We have other people who express worship and authority over us. Uh, so we have a president who's over us. We have senators who are over us representatives, mayor, city councils, but the one we report to most directly is Jesus as Lord. That's what we believe. That's what we share in common with other Christians. So that then informs how we interact with one another. That informs the conversations that we have. Let me give you an example. When we then talk about how we're going to vote on immigration, uh, how we're going to talk about how we're going to vote on healthcare, how we think through policing or refugees, we do so out of the shared sense that we are citizens under the kingdom of Jesus. We're citizens under King Jesus, right? So in those conversations, what drives those conversations, what should undergird those conversations, what, what, we, what, what, what influences and informs those conversations are always what are the priorities of King Jesus? What are the values of King Jesus? As we then have this talk about, okay, how are we going to vote in ways that um, impact immigration or healthcare or policing? You understand then, too, that I think that actually unites us even when we have trouble agreeing on on specifics related to that. So we may at times disagree on some specifics related to, okay, which immigration law is better, what's the best way to reform policing or to deal with policing. We may have some disagreements on those specifics. However, that comes out of this shared conviction that 
because we're fellow citizens, uh, the, the, the things that, that we're going to speak to and the ways we're going to argue over this come out of the shared sense that the priorities of King Jesus should influence how we talk about this and how we argue about this, right? It's the per- we, we, we share the priorities of King Jesus as we talk about what happens with immigration, policing, and healthcare. It also means then, because we're fellow citizens who care about the priorities of King Jesus as we talk about those issues, I, I would argue it makes us stronger than to reject those, those points that might be made in conversations that aren't clearly attached to priorities of King Jesus. You may say, you know, here's why I care about immigration, but if it doesn't reflect the priorities of King Jesus, even worse, if it goes against the priorities of King Jesus, priorities that I think we can see in the Bible, uh, we can have another discussion. I think some of those priorities, but obviously love of neighbor is one big priority of King Jesus. Um, if, it, if it goes opposite that, then like, like that, that, that should not, that's not part of the conversation. That, just shouldn't, that should then tell us we should go in a different direction when it comes to this particular issue because that does not reflect a priority of King Jesus. And if we're fellow citizens of the kingdom of God under King Jesus, we always care. We share that priority. That, that is what should guide the conversation that we should have. So that's one sort of common identity that we have that influences how we then vote, how we have those discussions, how we vote. Here's another way of expressing that common identity that we find in the Bible. That, and that and it's this. Uh, number two, that we are fellow family members, that we are part of the same family. Ephesians 2, 18 to 20, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So you see that passage, it starts off recognizing that we're strangers and aliens. So the Bible knows that we human beings have divisions, right? So Strangers and aliens, we're estranged. We're strangers and aliens, estranged from God, also estranged from one another, right? And we see that in all the multiple lines of division that I've already talked about, race and ethnicity, country of origin, cultural background. But God, through Jesus, recreates us into something new. What is that something new? This new community, this new nation that we are, it says they're fellow citizens, so that, like we just talked about. But even more, we're also fellow family, that citizenship can also be expressed as a familial connection that we have. We're not just fellow citizens. When we talk about common identity as Christians, we have a common identity because we're part of the same kingdom, but we also have a common identity because we're part of the same family. This nation that we belong to, God's nation, is also can be expressed as one big family. We are, verse 19, members of the household of God. That's why we see over and over this reference of us being Brothers and sisters, siblings, part of the same family. That is hugely significant. Uh, back in, in, in the ancient world, uh, they, they would say that your closest connection is your blood relationship. It's not actually your spouse, right? That they would say you actually have, or this is the way they would think of these things. Obviously, you have a spouse that you're connected to, but your closest relationship in life was understood to be your blood relationship, your brother, your sister, right? So I think it's interesting that of all the ways the Bible could have described how Christians are connected to one another, it picks the strongest connection possible that can be expressed in that ancient culture. Familial connection, blood connection, brothers and sisters, it's part of the same family. Right? That, that makes all the difference, right? Now, and in, in expressing that, it's just a beautiful way of saying that doesn't mean we're all the same. So I have a sister. Um, we're clearly not the same. She's female. I'm male. 
she's into camping and hiking, which makes no sense to me. I have no desire to do any camping or hiking. I don't know how that happened, given the fact that we're in the same household. We have very different interests. Uh, we have we we we're, we're different genders, and yet, but she's my sister. I have a blood connection to her. That means I'm always tied to her. I'm always connected to her. The things that I do, anything that I do, has some sense of connection to her because we're part of the same family. The same is true for us as Christians. We are fellow citizens fellow family members, does it eliminate the distinctions that we have? So Revelation is clear on this, that in new heavens and new earth, as we are together as a people, we will still express the fact that we're from different tribes and languages and nations, right? When John has that vision, it was what, it, what he saw was clear to him. These are people from different tribes, languages, and nations, right? So those things are still true. It doesn't eliminate those things, but now they're expressed under a different reality, a, a different overarching reality and the idea of family allows that expression right and so while we're linked to different races and ethnicities different cultural backgrounds even different political alignments so an assumption here is that we may we will be as christians aligned differently uh, politically and even different political parties what we're saying is now because of that common identity all that gets filtered through something different filtered through the fact that we're part of fellow citizens in god's kingdom we're fellow family members it means that those different uh, alignments, the different groups that we're part of, because you are now part of this different community, uh, those different groups and alignments get adjusted, adapted, and molded in whatever way necessary such that, not that you lose them, but that you now find them fitting together in a way that allows you to still be part of God's kingdom, fellow citizens of, his, of the kingdom of heaven, fellow members of God's family. The, the, the world will tell you those different things are like jagged edges, so... I'm black, white, Latino, I'm rich, I'm poor. They're like sort of jagged edges and there's no way those, those, those pieces can fit together, right? They're, they're jagged. The Bible would say because you come to believe in Jesus and now come part of this different reality, part of the same kingdom, part of the same family, those jagged edges get rounded off in some way. If they don't, we're still different pieces. They almost become puzzle pieces rather than jagged edges. They're puzzle pieces that somehow now fit together and express this biblical this amazing mosaic that only is possible in the kingdom of God, only possible in God's household. Here's another way to think about it. Think of like your race, your ethnicity, your cultural background, your political alignments. They're seasoning, right? They're, they're a significant flavor to who you are. Some of us are salt. Some of us are, are pepper. Some of us are tamim. Uh, you know hot sauce is always representing, right? You know what I'm talking about? Hot sauce is always representing in-house. But the main flavor that we are is citizens Christians who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, members of the household of God. Once you became a Christian, that became your main flavor. And now you get to express the seasoning of who you are in all these beautiful ways that, that, that are necessary for the kingdom of God and the family of God to be what it should be. But that flavor is this base that God has given us that allows us now to express those things, not in a way that contradicts one another, but in a way that blends together to express the fact that we are still part of the same reality. And somehow it comes together because of what God has done through Jesus. That common identity, I would argue, that, that gives us everything we need to handle tensions, disagreements, uh, whatever they may be, right? There will always be tensions and disagreements. I think what I want to push for is that the problem we have, the reason I think those tensions and disagreements so often lead into division, uh, into separation to people leaving churches, the reason that happens is because we haven't done enough work 
talking about our common shared identity and relationship. Um, we need to do more to remind us and to over-communicate this, to get to the point where people are tired of saying this. I, I say this all the time in my local church. I think people are probably tired of me saying it, and that tells me I need to say it more, right? In whatever conversation we have, always remember we're going to do it as the sense that we are members of the same kingdom, the same family. We do it under the sense that we're under the same Lord, under the same king, under the same father, right? Again, all that shifts then how we're going to treat each other, how we talk to one another. It puts us in a way different perspective, way different setting as we think through how are we going to vote? How are we going to think through how we vote? How are we going to argue with one another over how we vote? So let me sort of finish with, I think, some specific practices then. If that is true, to the degree in which then I think we can say, yes, we are under the same household. We are part of the same kingdom. We have the same identity, right? Uh, we are citizens of the kingdom of God. We're part of the same family, and we want to be united. Here are some practices that help us maintain that unity in a way that expresses that common identity. Let me just sort of say this too before I sort of I, I list, uh, I think I've got three of them here. Um, these are practices to help us be united within our local churches. And I think this is one of the things, this is actually reassuring to us. Look, there is no American evangelical church for us to be a member of. There's no overarching thing called the American evangelical American evangelical church that you got to apply to and become a member of. Uh, not that any of us would want to anyway at this point, right? What there is, is membership in local churches. And so one of the things I always think about is what I care about, first of all, is what does it look like for me to be united with people, real life people, I know their names, I know their stories, who have decided to commit to fellowship with one another in specific local churches. Here's the practices that I want to display in my local context. The unity that we should want as overall church gets expressed practically in local context. Our common identity gets most practically expressed in local context. And as expressed in those local churches, by God's grace, yes, it does lead to unity across churches, across networks, right? I think one of the things I love about being part of the Surge Network is because, um, is, as I think it's a way for us to express that unity across multiple churches. But I would argue um, the best, one of the ways we can help have unity across a network of churches like Surge is the degree in which we're doing good work to have unity within our local church. So how do we do that? Here's some specific practices I would commend. Number one, that we bear with each other, that we bear with each other. So this is Ephesians 4.2. Paul talks about bearing with one another in love. Because we have common identity uh, and want to express unity with each other, it allows us to be patient with each other. <laughs> if, if we're part of the same household, part of the same kingdom, I, I, we're, we're, we're going to be here. We're going to be with one another. The only way that happens is if we have some degree of patience um, where we're willing to walk with each other through certain difficult topics, willing to realize this is not, not going to be resolved and I have to be okay with this not being resolved. Uh, I'm going to have to be okay with us having to continue to work at this, this issue that we disagree on for multiple weeks, months, maybe even longer. It means to bear with each other means sometimes we got to ignore and overlook some things. There's times people will say things that they should not say that are biased and prejudiced or worse. We should not be surprised by that. Uh, we are swimming in waters of division. Um, the only way you have the ability to ignore and overlook something is if you say, well, I'm family with them, right? I've had to overlook and ignore lots of things for my family members, uh, for my kids, <laughs> from spouse, from my spouse, from, from parents. For all, that's, that's part of it. The reason I over ignore and overlook some things is because I have something stronger. So there's some things I just got to let go, right? Um, but to bear with another also means there's some things we got to be ready to confess and forgive. And so there's something there because if you have a shared identity 
uh, as family and because we're together and we're under the same Lord, under the, the same household, there's times like we got to confess our sin and be like, I was wrong here. Forgive me. <laughs> I got to, I got to confess that. Right. And, and there's times, and then because we have the ability to bear for another, either that fact that we're the same kingdom, same family, we have the, we have the ability to forgive and to look and to take, to see what forgiveness looks like and to see how we might repair a relationship that might be broken. Right. So we bear with one another. Right. That's a hugely important practice if we want to have unity. Uh, that's how we express that unity uh, and that common identity by bearing with, with each other. Number two, uh, we got to speak truth to each other. We got to speak truth to each other. Ephesians 4.15, Paul writes, we need to speak the truth in love. Having a common identity uh, allows, is, is, gives us something that's strong enough for us to directly encourage each other at times, other times to directly admonish and exhort each other. Like unity only really happens if we can actually talk directly and truthfully to each other. And that unity, we can have that unity if we have that sense. We are all fundamentally together. We have the same loyalty to Jesus. We were adopted into the same family. We got the same last name in Christ. So that means that we can then say the things. We must be able to say some things that say, hey, look, I, I think this is true. Other times, I think you're wrong on this, like really wrong. It means that we have the ability to have conversations where we challenge each other, um, where there's some areas like we need to change, right? But to do so, to challenge each other, to, 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 say, to say, in some cases, there's some areas where like, we need to think differently. We need to be more on the same page that like we as Christians, because, like we actually got it wrong, right? And, you, and there's some things we need to say to one another. Some, some of us might need to vote differently. I, I think it's true. Uh, and to think differently about how we're voting. We can only do that if we can speak this truth to each other. And the common identity allows us to do that without fighting each other without sort of um, killing each other, literally, right? Verbally <laughs> um, the, or, or in social media or whatever it might be. Having that sense of common identity allows us to, to speak truth, to challenge each other and be challenged by one another and still stay united with each other. So we want to bear with each other. We want to speak truth to each other. Lastly, we, we love each other. Um, a common identity gives us the ability to fundamentally love one another. This is, and that was part of those other two points. Those two verses both mentioned love. Uh, bearing with one another in love, Ephesians 4, 4, 2, Ephesians 4, 15, speaking the truth in love. Uh, we're citizens, but more than that, we're family, and so we love like family. So when we bear with each other, when we speak truth to one another, when we challenge one another, even when it leads to arguing and debating, uh, when it comes to how we vote, we do so out of this sense of love for one another and not just a generic love out of a love for someone who's a fellow family member, uh, who's someone who's part of the same household, someone who's part of the same kingdom. Um, so that influences then how we vote, doesn't it? Right. You're going to vote based out of love for fellow Christians, fellow Christians in your local church specifically in all of them. Right. And all their differences that they have. Um, so me leading a multi-ethnic church, I'm going to vote based out of love for my people. Right. Um, that influences then my political loyalties. That influences my the things that I, I talk about and how I talk about them. It frankly, it does limit me sometimes. Sometimes there's some things I got to hold back on out of love for other people. Sometimes there's things I got to speak to out of love for the, the fellow members of the household of God that gets expressed at the church I'm part of, Roosevelt Community Church. That helps us like right now in the midst of this particular election season to have that sense of love for another. 
But also, I want you to know how that also helps you after the election. Right now, we're focused on where we are right now. But I think having this sense of, of shared identity uh, and the fact that our loyalty and allegiance is ultimately to that kingdom of God under King Jesus and the household of God that helps us after the election. And what I mean by that is, you know, if your choice or your party wins, um, what that means is when you are in the room because like your choice and your party won, and now you're, you're with the group that won, you're in that room ultimately representing not your choice and your party, but your ward, your church, your family. You've temporarily aligned with this, this party and this choice, right? And so and you, you happen to win. But now that you're in the room, it's not like you get subsumed under that choice, that party. Your allegiance is always to your ward and to your church. Sometimes that means as you're in the room, they're going to be happy with you because the things that they're pushing, the priorities they have do represent the, the priorities of King Jesus and the priorities of his family. Other times, it does not represent the priorities of King Jesus and your family. And because you represent King Jesus and your family, you will speak prophetically into it. You must, because ultimately, you've you got to remind people, look, I, I'm here. This is a temporary partnership, right? Ultimately, in New Heavens and Europe, that's what I'm part of. You may get kicked out of the room because in those circles, it's, well, you got to buy in fully to everything. We as Christians should never do that. We've never done that, right? At times, we got to be Nathan who says, I know King David, like you – you, you're, God's, you're, after, you're a man after God's own heart. Everyone likes you, but right now you're wrong. I'm going to tell you, right? Ultimately, that common identity helps us to maintain, frankly, our integrity, no matter what happens in November or in the months to happen, in the, the months to come. Let me finish with this. Uh, again, read this. Uh, I read this earlier. Philippians 3, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Look, that helps us right now for understanding who we are, but also helps us in the sort of eschatological sense. We await a savior, right? We await a savior. Like that, that should humble us. That humbles us in this season because it makes us always remember, really, what we need is saving. <laughs> we, we need saving. We need the saving that only Jesus can bring. It's like, and also it's just a North Star that we need because it reminds us that what we're headed towards is the full saving that Jesus is going to bring. We're headed towards heaven, towards Jesus. We want to progress towards that moment, but that's ultimately where we want to land. That's We're part of it now, and we will be part of it forever. That humbles us, and I think also it gives us hope, um, because no matter what happens, I firmly believe that is the reality that will exist over the entire cosmos. The kingdom of God, the family of God together forever. Um, that gives me great perspective. Uh, it gives me great confidence in every conversation and every interaction and everything that happens now and in the future. So that's it. Thank you guys for, for listening. Appreciate it. Awesome, Ramon. Thank you so much for leading us through that. Um, I wanted to remind everyone, please uh, feel free to type any questions you may have uh, in the chat box or in the Q and a box. Um, yeah, and really, really no, no questions are off limit. We, we want to uh, open the door for, for good and uh, even challenging discussion um, if you have any questions for Vermon. Vermon, um, you, uh, yeah, thank you first off for, for just providing what really feels like a, a foundation or a framework um, rather than answering the question of 
how do we vote, um, giving us some some tools and some common ground to to really establish ourselves on as we as we answer those questions and as we navigate such a um, such a complicated and volatile and um, really for a lot of people a fearful season. Um, so I think uh, I think what you what you offered really really helps ground us in, in what we know to be common and true. Um, as you um, as some questions come in, uh, I always want to ask for the sake of people listening and for the sake of people listening afterwards, um, what are some resources, books, uh, primarily or podcasts, blogs that, that you found helpful um, in thinking through this? I know that you referenced a couple of them if you wanted to reiterate th- those or yeah, um, any others that come to uh, mind. I mean, there's, a, there's a bunch. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I'm terrible with titles. I probably could uh, send them out a little bit later. I mean, I think Jonathan Lehman has a, a book that I found really helpful. Um, I'm forgetting the name of that book, um, but I thought he has a, sort of a lot of different categories that are in there that are really helpful. Uh, it's in Baycoat. I want to I think it's called The Political Disciple or something along those lines that I think uh, that I found really helpful and sort of sort of, sort of gives some certain categories for us to think through those things. So those two that, that immediately come to mind. Um, if you give me a little bit of time, I can, I can send a few others. Uh, I think, uh, yeah. Would... yeah, absolutely. And if anything comes to mind, but yeah, just that uh, provides a good starting place. Um, someone anonymously asked, uh, and to clarify, if, if uh, anyone wants to send questions either anonymous, anonymously or with your name, um, yeah, totally up to you, but both are options. So someone's asking, can you please address the necessary sacrifice of speaking the truth in love? Um, yeah, to speak the truth in love won't, won't always be accepted. In fact, we should expect it not to be accepted, right? Yeah. Um, and so that that hurts at times. Um, truth, I mean, not everyone uh, accepts truth, even truth spoken with love. Uh, I think second, was it second Corinthians, beginning part of second Corinthians, Paul talks about us being the, before God, the Roma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. For some, it's the Roma of death to death. Some is the Roma of life to life. So think about this. So to be the Roma of Christ is to speak the truth with love. Jesus always spoke truth with love. Some will still think it smells pretty bad and don't want it. And others will, will respond to it. Um, and so there's always, that, that hurts every single time to do it. Um, and, and yeah, I think, I think the gospel that gives us the ability to, to, to press into that, to, you know, to accept the fact that there is sacrifice to live as a Christian um, and to claim that as our identity. Um, it's the burden that we bear, but it's a burden that Jesus bears with us. Um, we sacrifice and we suffer at times, even when we're doing speaking and, and speaking and doing good things, even blamed for, for different ways. And, and I think sadly we're in a season where, um, you know, I sort of began with this, but it's true. Like there's, there's, there is sadly, I would say a, a basic tilt right now within a lot of local churches to ignore and dismiss this thing, these things, the fact that sort of the political divisions and racial, I'd say specifically racial divisions happening. And I think the, the normal tact is to, to not talk about it because to speak the truth in love and those things still causes people to, to run away, to leave our churches and all the implications of that. And it's sad, and I just would say, um, I'm sorry, as Christians, we, we can't, we, we don't be afraid. <laughs> um, yeah. We have to be bold and speak to those things. Um, I think it's something we will regret uh, in the decades to come, um, that we uh, didn't speak God's truth in the midst yeah. of this situation, even if people didn't want us to, to hear it. There's sacrifice to do so, but I think it's sacrifice that, that God is with us and, and will we'll, um, we'll encourage us in, will strengthen us within it. Um, we can suffer well in the midst of this. 
Yeah. Can I ask a follow-up question, Ramon? Um, it seems that a lot of the, a lot of the political dialogue that's happening right now, um, there's, there's a lot of what we would call like a confirmation bias going on where people are seeking out a lot of sources and fe- seeking out even like biblical justifications for just reinforcing arguments. And so, um, for a lot of people, both on the left and on the right and in between, um, there's lots of, um, it seems like each new development, each new discussion uh, has the potential of just further grounding people in their already established views. Um, and so as it pertains to this speaking the truth and love idea, I wonder, um, I feel like there are maybe all of us to some extent, but certainly a lot of people that believe that they're speaking the truth in love when really they need that truth spoken to them. Um, so what, what does it look like to, to humbly receive the truth in love when um, maybe we're think, we think we're on the right side or we think we've got a substantial justification for? Yeah, uh, a couple of things. I mean, I think, first of all, we have to have that sort of fundamental sense that okay, we're with this common identity, part of the same household, citizen of God's kingdom, um, which means we're with other people who are different than us, right? But share that identity with us. The, the reason that we're part of that same household and that same kingdom directly says that there's people who are going to bring different perspective and, and different, different emphasis, right? In, in those things. And, and because um, God's kingdom isn't just made of only Jews or only Gentiles, it's Jew and Gentiles, all these different people. Like I have to fundamentally have a posture of like, I need to receive what's being given to me. If people are speaking to me with a sense of, not again, a, a sense of shared identity where I'm speaking to you out of the sense I follow the same Lord and part of and follow and under the same father. Then that, that means my posture should fundamentally be like, I have to be willing to, to be challenged, right? Because yeah. a family member should be able to do so. Um, that, that's one part of it. And another part of it is just, I mean, the Bible sort of speaks uh, in Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, just, you need to have this sort of plex, plank spec type of perspective on things. Which is to say that, like, before I take a speck out of someone's eye, right, he says, take a plank out of your own eye. It yeah. means, yes, you should, there's something out of that person's eye to take out, to take out, but always have that posture of self-examination, right? So that's, that means when someone's speaking to you, you should see it as an opportunity to, to take out whatever's in your eye. And the implication being that we all have something in our eye, right? We, yeah. always, we always have that. Um, that. That's always going to be there at some degree. We have some things we're more sensitive to other things that we, we, we won't miss. Um, and so I think that that kind of, I think humility, I think to be a Christian is fundamentally have some sense of humility and humility requires an ability to hear from other people and to, and to, and again, to hear, to, to hear from them in a way that I think that, that should influence us and, and direct us. Um, uh, we shouldn't use that as, a, we, sh- we should be ready to, to have our perspectives changed um, and molded in most different ways um, when, as, as part of being, being part of the same community. Now, as a side note, I wouldn't say that we should use that as leverage over other people. Like, so someone speaks truth to me. If it's not, not right, I mean, that's not to be like, in other words, it's not like to say someone, I have truth to speak to you with love and you need to receive it, you know, wholesale. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But it doesn't mean in general, you should humbly speak truth with love. I should humbly receive it. And I really believe God can use it to help us then get to the things that we need to get to uh, in order to express the kind of witness we need to express. Awesome. Um, another participant is asking, uh, pretty directly. It appears that president Trump did not denounce white supremacy last night in the presidential debate when he had the chance to do so. Should Christians find this troubling? 
Yeah, so from what I saw, I mean, he was asked to denounce white supremacy, and he said, sure. And then he went on to make a very problematic statement about sort of the Proud Boys, um, rather than sort of denouncing them, he said, was it st- stand back and stand by? Yeah, stand back, stand by, something along uh, those lines. Yeah, which is a minority I find extremely troubling. Um, just gets into something I said sort of at the end. Um, I th- one of the things I'm, I'm saying here is that I do think Christians will disagree on who they vote for. Um, I just want to, I want to hold us as Christians to it. Um, and so if you're a Christian who has voted for Trump, let's put it that way, maybe he's considering voting again. Um, yeah, I want you to be challenged by that, right? And to think through that, what that means. But if your guy wins, right, Trump wins, um, you should be able, when he's inconsistent with Christian values, um, to speak to it directly, wholesale. These mega identities that formed, what happens is it's almost like to critique any other aspect of Trump like threatens everything else. So maybe you're voting for Trump because of abortion, religious liberty, all those other things. Okay, um, Christians may disagree with you whether that's the best way to do it, but because of those things, if he's wrong on some other things that reflect the priorities of Jesus, one of the priorities of Jesus is love of neighbor. We all made an image of God. But we, you should be the first to be like, yeah, that, that's wrong. And it's true on the other side. When Biden says some things that I think are problematic about black people, like, yeah, that's not, that's, we as Christians should be, you know, those who are aligned with Biden should be able to speak to those things as well. Um, it's in the Bible is full of examples like this. Um, so Nathan speaking truth to, uh, to King David, Daniel speaking, he's, he's working for King Nebuchadnezzar, but when Nebuchadnezzar is wrong, he's like, no, I can't do that. It's wrong. <laughs> right. Um, we have, uh, John the Baptist, uh, speaking to Herod, right. All these different examples. Um, and so in this particular example, yeah, I think at least personally speaking, I think we as Christians should be clear, like Trump, you got to do better than that. And we shouldn't sort of be like, well, what he did was good enough. No, I mean, it, it, that should be, that's, that's an easy one to, 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 to be able to speak to, to speak to clearly and directly. And I don't care how many times you said it in the past. Um, there's some things when we, particularly the history of our country, we should say repeatedly, man, let's remind ourselves, let's say it again. <laughs> this is wrong. Right? Any white supremacy groups like, like the Proud Boys are, are wrong. Um, and there's any number of things we can go down the line. I don't feel a need to do like, what about the Democrats in this? I mean, just, we can bring up an example here for Democrats as well. But here's this particular example, whatever is uh, this particular example or other examples that come down the line in any political circles that we're in, the degree in which they don't reflect the priorities of King Jesus and the family of God, we should be able to clearly and prophetically, and to be prof- to prophet means being bold and courageous, say like, no, that's, that's, that's not right be better here. Here's, here's the value that we should represent. Yeah. Um, Ramon, you've, you've talked about how, uh, even just now, how, um, how some of the, everything that we're talking about, the, the discord and the, um, the lack of alignment is really happening from, from both sides of the political party. This next uh, question is getting just at that saying that, really neither partly is going to align um, either in this present day and age or historically has aligned perfectly with Christian values. And so um, both major parties are, are going to have differences and are going to have, um, have deficits from what we would uphold to be true. Uh, so this question asks on November 3rd, when we walk into, um, when we walk into vote, we're, and we're voting according to this two-party system, neither of which is going to fully adhere to biblical standards or, or Christ's teaching. Um, says, 
if we really are holding up a biblical filter for how to vote, aren't we still going to make significant sacrifices regardless of which side we choose to vote for? Um, and, and how do you reconcile that? Yeah, I mean, it's true. That's, it sucks. <laughs> how can I put it? How else can I put it? I mean, yes, that, that's, I think that's what that feels disconcerting to a lot of us, recognizing that um, there, there, there's compromises or however we, we pull the lever. Um, it's, I don't think it's not the first time Christians have faced this. Um, I do want to challenge us that, you know, I think part of the conversation that needs to happen in local churches is to weigh those compromises, right? And so we're, we're going to try to model something like that at our church this Sunday um, to sort of weigh that, like which has more compromises, right? That's, that's really what we're talking about here. And I think that's a legitimate question to ask um, in terms of like which, you're pulling the lever, are there, even though I may gain this, there's so many losses in all these other areas, I can't do that. Um, and that's, I think those are the conversations to have, but, um, but yeah, I think that that's, that's part of what that's, I think that's part of reality we face. And I think there, there can be a sense of unity with that. Like, wow, this, this does stink that like we have, we have, we're in a position where we had to face this and we're in a culture that feels like we're facing this even more than we have in maybe previous, previous votes. Um, I think then this again relates to what happens after the election. I think if there's a failure over the last four years, for so much of the American church is an unwillingness to speak prophetically uh, to the political system, no matter what was going on, no matter who was talking. Um, if uh, we, we as Christians, no matter who wins, um, can then have the ability to speak consistently uh, and to, to then not compromise on anything, to not be like, well, if I speak too strongly on this issue, um, then um, that might compromise what I want to have happen on these other issues, right? And so whether abortion, policing, immigration, religious liberty, COVID-19, healthcare, all these other things, it's almost like um, we, uh, it's almost like as Christians, like we, we, we act like we don't have a worldview that can't hold all those things together and the values that might influence when we speak to those things. And so we, we become silent on some things. We ignore some things because like, we're afraid that might hurt the person you know, who we, we're temporarily aligned with. Hmm. Like, why do we care about that as Christians? Like we, I, the parties come and go, right? Jesus remains the same. His kingdom remains the same. Um, and, you know, the, historically speaking, uh, there's, Christians have sometimes been ex- part of the mainstream, more often than not, not been part of the mainstream. I think just the historic tradition we should look to most right now, I would argue, is our brothers and sisters who were slaves, right? And who were Christians, right? And were part of a system that was racist uh, and ignored them. And what it looked like to speak prophetically to a, a nation that for far too long ignored. Those are, that's, that's our brothers and sisters uh, in Christ. And we may be entering into a period of time where we find ourselves not within the mainstream, right? Um, I don't think we should be rushing to part of mainstream. Whether we're accepted or not doesn't matter. We should speak prophetically. That requires, right now, like, you know, again, to pull the lever is the one moment where we have to sort of like, man, just this this doesn't feel, feel very good right now to do this, but that's just one moment pulling the lever. There's all these moments after the election where we can speak consistently and we don't have to compromise because we can speak whatever the issue that's on the table in front of us, we can speak prophetically to it and reflect, I think, what the Bible wants us to reflect. Um, and we, sh- we should inhabit that. And, and, and when ha- we should inhabit that fully in every sense of the word. Awesome. Yeah, I think our... Um how we vote is should be an overflow and expression of of our identity in Christ, but to to assume that our identity in Christ can be contained within one political party um, it's definitely uh, 
a bit reductionistic. Um, and I think, Vermon, you, um, just that idea that there, there are these compromises, there are these exchanges, um, maybe helps play into uh, this understanding of, of what it looks like to relate as one another, uh, relate to one another as family in Christ, in that um, if we all come to the table knowing that we're making our decisions from a common ground, but we're choosing our sacrifices and choosing those compromises differently, then I can look at someone that voted differently than me and said, it doesn't necessarily mean that we, yeah. you know, that, that, that common ground is split or that we're, we're enemies. It's just, you chose to, you chose to weigh those, weigh those balances and, and those, that pro con list a little differently. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. I think that's, that's the one thing I want to press and maybe change people, changing people and how they talk about it. So I want to press people to say, so for example, we're going to talk about immigration love of neighbor should be a huge value that we hold in common. To the degree in which another value comes in, like uh, I'm, I'm thinking about immigration policy based on really my own comfort or some sort of sense of protectionism, I would say like that's not that's coming from a different identity group, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, that might conflict against I, I would argue love a neighbor. Now, because of love a neighbor, we may still disagree on some specifics related to that. Um, however, love a neighbor at least grounds us to say, well, here's how we're going to sort of disagree based on that shared value. And I would argue the more shared values we have, I, I think it actually brings us closer to, to together, even on some specifics. I think there's some specifics related to some of the issues that if we, if we were more aware of the values that should drive it, we realize, oh, wow, actually, you're right. That doesn't reflect the image of God or love of neighbor, or um, it doesn't express uh, the fact that like, we should be able to be free to follow Jesus, no matter what setting we're in, or any number of different things, right, that we can sort of talk about that should be part of being a Christian in this country. Um, I think I think the degree in which we sort of more attach our specific decisions to those values uh, and we have those kind of conversations, I think I think more often than we might realize, we would agree on even some very specific things. And then that gives that much more of a, a stronger prophetic witness when we speak. I think you're, I'm not hearing you. <laughs> Concluding thoughts or exhortations. This, this whole, uh, again, has been a really helpful, helpful framework, helpful, um, almost lens for us to, to really filter so many different, uh, so many different voices and so many different conversations through. Um, so I'm really, really thankful for, for this discussion on, on behalf of the network uh, and even for myself. Um, oh, looks like one more came through if, uh, and I think we have time for it, if you're okay with it. Sure. Yeah. So on the thread of speaking prophetically, where's the church failing? If every four years we have to say this sucks, um, we reactively have to settle. What does proactivity look like? Yes. I, I do believe this is again from, um, one of my beginning premises, this idea that we as Christians, I mean, and it's, it is a strong Christian tradition to sort of remove ourselves from the world. We're just sort of like on the lifeboat, right? And we're waiting to get rescued. And the world is going to hell in a handbasket, as they say. Um, it's sort of like, I think we, this sort of isolationism of Christians, I, I would argue like that's, that's exactly the wrong posture. Um, that we as Christians are called to be light in darkness salt in the world. So that means we have a distinctive influence on the world around us. So we do need to move into the darkness. We need to move into the places that are 
They have no salt in them. So over these next four years, I think one of the ways we do we act proactively is to be involved in all these different spaces. Uh, and so as Christian, I do want Christians involved in both parties, right? Um, uh, or multiple, I mean, there's multiple parties, but certainly the two main parties that we have in multiple organizations in multiple places. And to speak prophetically as Christians out of our shared identity as Christians and to to be used in those spaces in ways that I think that can, that can shift things. And it can happen. And so as Christians, our, our, our hope isn't ultimately that well, things will change, right, in the sense that, like, we can be fine, even if our prophetic witness ends in failure and things don't change the way we want them to. I just want to give the reassurance, like, God, that that, that happens too, and that, that's happened in the past um, because we know God's kingdom is coming. That gives us hope uh, that, like, our, our, our sense of, um, of happiness, of joy isn't, based necessarily on their success. However, we should also not be surprised that God does work as we move into those spaces and, and, and God uses us. Um, again, the tradition we should look to is the black church during the civil rights movement. Um, you see, I think one of the best examples we have in American history of the church moving into spaces, into the legal system, into the justice systems and saying, this is wrong. This is wrong. <laughs> right? Um, this, this violates what God calls the fact that we're all made in the image of God, right? This, this, this fact that we segregate the way we do, we have these racist laws the way we do. And um, I think it's, we, we, we don't appreciate how monumental that was over the course of those, you know, 15, 20 years. Um, we began to, we made a significant dismantling of legalized racism. Not all of it, but, but a huge, a huge thing happened there because for 350 years, we had something different. So, and God saw fit to work through his people who moved into those spaces um, and to, 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 to bring change. I think, I think God can still do those type of things. Um, and, and yet we, we do it prayerfully. We do it, we, we do it humbly. Uh, change may happen, may not happen, but it can only happen if I think we as, as Christians are willing to, to, to be in those spaces. Um, and where, uh, and I'm going to presupposition here for me is I believe in common grace. So in those places where, like, well, yes, this aligns with what God wants. Um, praise God. Like, we're with it, right? Uh, Nehemiah uh, goes to the was it King Darius and says, hey, you know, can you let my people go back to Israel? And he's like, yes, great. <laughs> Align with God's purposes. I'm going to build the wall, all those things. Other cases, um, uh, the, the, the king or the emperor or president is not doing what God wants. But we'll speak up there as well. Uh, we're going to trust that God, God can and will use it uh, in all sorts of different ways. And the last thing I have to mention, too, is also, too, just as Christians, we can also create our own things and create our own spaces, create our own movements. Um, and so um, some of the best, some of the, some of the best hospitals and um, some, some, some parts of the abolition movement, some of the things that were done to reform child labor laws, uh, to advocate for women, were, came about through Christians starting new organizations and, and, and new movements um, and, and moving into spaces and, and advocating in those spaces with the movements and other things, the institutions that they formed. So I think we as Christians, um, I, I think very much we, we are in need of starting some new things right now. And there's a lot of things that are unfortunately have become very broken. Uh, and um, I, I would encourage us over these next four years to begin to think more differently and creatively um, about how we might um, uh, in, in different things, uh, in, in different type of alignments, form things that allow us to have that kind of consistent witness that I think Christians can uniquely have. Yeah, I think I think this, but really, or this whole time with you has has been a significant call to action, not just to 
um, not just in the actual voting process and in the discussions that we have, but um, to embrace and express our Christian identity um, more than once every four years. And that, that, yeah, how we're involved and how we're engaged in, in our politics and in our cities and in our community uh, really should, should not just be this, uh, this occasional event, um, but something that, that shapes our behavior and, and gets us out there. Um, again, go ahead. I was just saying, our world needs it. I mean, I just, I would just say, um, I'm struck by the circles I'm in, how much, um, my ability to provide, um, sort of this bigger gospel story (laughs) to to the topics that were justice topics we're talking about, like how much people, a lot of people eat it up. Not everyone, but a lot of people do. Right now there's, yeah, people, a lot of conversation about a lot of different things. Um, again, Here's the surprise, the gospel is big enough and strong enough to address those things and give us the context for it. Um, you, you just got to use it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think um, even speaking to this question so much, there's so much dialogue and, and concern at the national or even the global levels with lots of these things about where's the church falling short and where are they being reactive, which I think are, are questions worth contemplating and, and asking, um, but not if they are preventing us individually and in our local context from getting involved in, and doing what we can to be, to be salt and light. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think, Vermon, this, this discussion has really... Um, really taken that big conversation and, and distilled it in um, actionable uh, ways that, that we can, we can kind of take home and assess how are we approaching these questions and what, what can we actually do about them um, in ways that uh, serve our community and honor Christ. So really thankful for, for your time, uh, for your leadership uh, in the local context and lo- and your leadership uh, for all of us in the surge network Um as we close, I just wanted to encourage everyone to, if you're not following us on social media or signed up for our newsletter, we'll, we'll have a few more uh, speakers in the series. Our next one's going to be October, October 14th. Um, it's going to be a discussion on becoming the beloved community in a multi-ethnic world. And that'll be led by Ephraim Smith and then our own Kimberly Deckel um, on the Surge team. So mark your calendars for that. Uh, you can check out our social media or the website to sign up for it. Um, And Vermont, thank you again very much. All right. Talk to you later.